Welcome everybody to the Diecast Movie Podcast, where this episode we have a special interview brought to you by my dad. Take it away, dad. Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast. Um, this is Steve and I'm joined today by James Rosen, who's an actor, screenwriter, writer, and just a, a person who's traveled around the world. How are you doing today, Mr. Rosen? I'm very good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. And for listeners, we're recording this on um, October 30th, 2021. So tomorrow's Halloween. Are you doing mm-hmm. anything special for Halloween? No, I'm not really. Just watch some football games. I don't plan on trick-or-treating, no. <laughs> Do you have any trick-or-treaters that come to your neighborhood at all? Uh, there are some. Not not too, not too many. Uh but once in a while, you get someone banging on the door, you know, and you give out the candy. Well, that's good. I, I remember growing up and going door to door and having all that fun stuff. And, and Yeah, it was fun. Yeah. And my children are going time. to some different parties. They're, they're, they're yes. figuring out what costumes. They're all like college age or beyond. All right. <laughs> but um, as I said, you've done a lot of different things, um, which mm-hmm. I find interesting. You, you started up in Philadelphia. What was it like growing up in Philadelphia? Because I grew up most of my life in Baltimore, so it's kind of a similar vibe. Well, it is. Uh, Philadelphia, I grew up in a, a nice section, uh, the Mount Airy section of Philadelphia. And it was kind of suburban, and uh, I wasn't, you know, uh, downtown. Uh, I was 12 miles from the downtown area. And basically in the 1950s and 60s, and uh, it was a different time. Things were much simpler then. Uh, You didn't have all the choices and alternatives that you have today in terms of everything, really. And, you know, if you you had a choice of uh, Converse Sneaks, uh, Jack Purcells, or, or Keds, which you usually wore when you played tennis. Not 60 different kinds of, you know, Nikes and Adidas and New Balance shoes. So that's a perfect example. And it really was like that with everything. And I I think that people were, uh, were hardworking as they are today. But it definitely was a very simpler time. Uh, you, know, you, didn't, you didn't have all the problems in life that you have today. You had a lot of mom and pop stores, you know, you didn't have the big, a lot of the big corporations and uh, yep. stores that you have today. It was a nice time. It was a nice time. I uh, I remember it with a fondness and, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, life is about change. So uh, you adapt. That's the, one of the great things uh, that uh, human beings are able to do. You know, they, they're, 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 they're adaptive. Um, I remember when I but was it's interesting, up. you know, every, every, every decade there've been changing, you know, uh, changes. And, uh, when you look back, you see, uh, you know, you, you, you attend a lot of barbecues along the way mm-hmm. <laughs> and your travels down the highway. I, I grew up in, um, I was born in the late sixties. So I grew up in the seventies, which was mm. pretty much the tail end of the times you're talking about where the mom and pop stores started to get phased out by the mm-hmm. you know, more corporate stores like Kmart and two guys or three guys, whichever one it was. Yeah. And yeah. the precursors, all the Walmarts and, but still the, the neighbors were watching at you when you're outside playing, you had tons of eyes making sure you were doing everything you were supposed to be doing. Otherwise mom and dad mm-hmm. wouldn't know. Oh yeah. Yeah. Listen, the school systems were different. You know, the, the parents backed up the teachers and uh, it was strict, it was very strict, like in the 50s and 60s. And as far as, you know, the, the conventions and it was law and order and you did what you were supposed to do and nothing like today in the, in the schools. And uh, it, it, it was definitely a, a, a different time, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It was. It, in the seventies, um, for me, it was the conscience, conscious, consciousness movement because I was out in L.A. at that time, mm-hmm. which was, I think, it was a little progressive in that area as opposed to back east. I don't think they had started to catch up yet. Certainly not in the late sixties, uh, the very beginning of the seventies. 
L.A. was in, in uh, uh, full bloom in that regard, you know, yep. in, in terms of the, the, the way people uh, dressed and wore their hair and their 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 lifestyle. The folkways were very, very different in, in L.A. than they were in Philly. So that was fun. It was interesting, you know. Because I was 22 years old when I moved uh, moved out to LA to to seek my fortune in the uh, television industry, and it definitely definitely was a whole different arena than what I was used to. Went to college. You went to Temple University, and mm-hmm. what led you to go into acting? Was it something in high school or earlier, or was it when you got to Temple? I. I I'm, I I don't know. I you know I used to uh, watch all of the uh, nighttime shows. I I loved the anthology shows that were done in the uh, in the 1950s. You know Jane Wyman's Fireside Theater and the Loretta Young Show and Schlitz Playhouse of Stars and uh, these were all 30 minute shows, uh, dramatic shows, and uh, I just. It, 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 the the whole scheme of things appealed to me where you had people that had uh, clear-cut intentions and conflicts and uh you know at the end of the half hour they 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 resolved them you know there was an honesty and a truthfulness and a, a confrontation that doesn't exist in real uh, everyday life that did on the uh on the screen in the movie theaters and in the uh on your uh, your television set in your living room, and that appealed to me. So uh, I used to uh, uh, in summer camp. I used to uh, they used to put on variety shows, and I would be the MC, and I would dress up in different characters, and I would introduce the acts, and uh, I, I I kind of enjoyed being up in front of people and entertaining them, you know. But most of all, I liked acting because um, you had that intimacy that 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 uh direct connection with someone the other actor in the scene and uh so when i got to uh, uh school when they got to college i studied broadcasting but uh, you know in studying broadcasting uh, and radio production we put i had to put on plays for the uh, philadelphia school system we did historical dramas and uh so i acted in those and uh, did some directing and uh that furthered my interest so by the time I was finished, I decided I didn't want to go into broadcasting, but I rather wanted to uh, become an actor. So I just packed my bags and uh, went to L.A. And what was it like when you got out to L.A.? Because you said it was a, a totally different than you were expecting it to be. Yeah, it was very spread out. The, the sunshine most of the time, you know, to be amongst the sunshine and the palm trees, it was different because I went in the middle of January, uh, the beginning of January, as a matter of fact. And, uh, you know, I left Philadelphia on a cold, bleak, dreary uh, afternoon. So it was a whole whole different world. Uh, as I said, the, the, you know, people were very much into uh, uh, a lot. A lot of uh, people were into the consciousness movement. And, and uh, you know, you had the drug culture out there and just the way people uh, – uh, dressed and behaved and you know you had the movie industry the music industry were very prevalent in LA so you throw all those things together the the culture of the folkways were very different in LA uh, than they were in the east coast cities and uh, LA is very spread out very spread out uh, you know downtown LA was really not a place you really spent much time in because there were so many other areas where things were going on, like, in, you know, in Hollywood and mm-hmm. Beverly Hills and Westwood where UCLA is and Santa Monica and, and the beach, Malibu. And and then uh, if you're in L.A., you go over the hill into the valley and you have, you know, Universal City and Sherman Oaks and Studio City and Van Nuys and Encino and all these suburbs. So that's pretty much where the action was, you know, in all those places that I'm listing. And uh, I was very happy there. I was excited. You know, I I spent about four or five years in acting workshops, and I began to do plays on L.A.'s smaller theater circuit. And uh, I worked at the Beverly Hills Hotel, which was a very 
famous venue for the entertainment industry. It was a very private type hotel. Uh, the Bel Air Hotel was also very private, but the Beverly Hills Hotel had a great name and uh, had bungalows in the back. And a lot of uh, people in the entertainment industry stayed there if they were not from L.A. You know, if they were doing a film, working on something in uh, in L.A., they would stay at the Beverly Hills Hotel. Howard Hughes lived in the back oh, really? for a while. Yeah, he had a bungalow because it was very private and he was a reclusive man, as you probably know. Um, I had an interesting encounter with all the a lot of the actors and actresses I uh, grew up with. Uh, interesting encounters, I should say. Uh, being a bartender in the pool lounge, I was very young, and they all they all came in there to for cocktails or for lunch. So I got to wait on a lot of people that I grew up with in movies and TV. It was a big thrill for me. The the biggest um, charge I got was one night I wound up working for Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton at a small uh, cocktail party, the Academy Awards, which was two nights before, and she was a presenter there. So I got to meet them and talk with them, and they were very nice people. And it was a small party, uh, and the hotel was just re- really a cool place. You know, I spent a few years there, and then I bartended at some of the country clubs uh, after I left there, Hillcrest, Mm-hmm. which was across the street from 20th Century Fox. A lot of the Jewish entertainers were members there. So I I uh, mingled with them, you know, Groucho uh, Marx and George Burns and uh, Georgie Jessel and Jack Benny, people like that. Uh, Edward, Edward G. Robinson was a member there. He was a nice man. He used to come by the bar and talk to me. Um, and then I did the same at some of the other country clubs, Brentwood Country Club and Riviera out in the Pacific Palisades. And, and those were places where a lot of the, uh, a lot of actors, uh, you know, belonged and played golf. So it was fun. You know, I, I, uh, I had a good time and then I traveled. I traveled across country. I wandered through Europe for about three months and, had a lot of interesting experiences there. Then I wound up living on a kibbutz in Israel for six months. And then I came back to L.A. I decided not to spend time in New York. And I went back to L.A. And that's when I began to get work in TV, you know, uh, uh, bit parts. And then I graduated to some supporting roles. And uh, I stayed there, you know, a total of 11 years. And I, you know, I moved to New York to pursue uh, work in, in the theater. And uh, I'd written a play about a uh, cab driver in Beverly Hills, which is what I did after I left bartending. That was also a very interesting profession. And uh, I spent nine years in New York. So I was gone from Philadelphia for about over 20 years. And uh, eventually I had I had to return here for family reasons. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, then I kind of got away from the business, but I pursued it, you know, for a good 20, 20 years, you know. And for people wondering, when you said some TV credits and everything, and for those wondering, as your acting career, you were a working actor, you know, which means you're, you're going to be, as you said, in different TV shows or movies, and you could be just a, um, a bit part to more of a supporting role. Sometimes you're an, an, an extra, but it's, it, I find it fascinating because a lot of people don't, re- you know, you'll, you'll see people like yourself in all these different TV shows or movies. And you're like, I've seen that guy. He was in this other show and mm-hmm. you know, and you, and you're, you're in that role. You, you've got to be in a whole bunch of different things and mm-hmm. never had to worry about being typecast. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was the least of my problems. No, I, you know, I, I don't know that I was recognizable, but I, you know, I started out with, uh, with bits and pieces. And then, uh, there were shows where I did some nice supporting roles. Uh, I never did any extra work in in television. Never did that. Uh, they had a separate union at the time. And, uh, I guess I did about 25 shows, something like that. And then, um, you know, and then of course I began to write, you know, I wrote a play about the cab driver in Beverly Hills, which I mentioned. And I, uh, I, uh, 
that was done at a, uh, a smaller theater in Hollywood. And uh, uh, Jack Klugman, I got to meet him uh, through my family, and uh, he read the play, and uh, he was getting ready to do a, an episode about an autistic child. So he he uh, he was looking for a writer, and uh, he gave me some books to read, and and uh, we wrote that show together. Uh, it was the lead-off show, I think, or the third episode of the fourth season. It was the first one filmed. That's what it was for that fourth year. And then, so I wound up doing some uh, writing several Quincy's stories and teleplays for three of them. And then, um, then I wrote for some of the soaps. And that's what got me going with my writing. Uh, but the play was the springboard. Mm-hmm. And uh, cab driving in Beverly Hills uh, and the surrounding area is very interesting because I met a lot of people. Of course, when I when the play opened, I carried flyers of the play with me in my front seat. And if anybody got in my cab that was an actor, an actress, or a producer, or anybody I thought could further the career of the play, I was, uh, you know, uh, right there to hand them a flyer like a proud papa. And I did that with people like Paul Newman and Woody Allen and Steve McQueen. And uh, it was interesting. The, the, the funniest story was Woody Allen. I was standing across from the Beverly Wilshire Hotel in downtown Beverly Hills one day. The cab stand was across the street. And I had some flyers in my hand. I don't know why I had them in my hand, but I did have some. Uh, maybe I was I'd made copies. I don't know. And next to me at the light was this little fella and I turned and looked and it was Woody Allen. So not being very bashful, I, uh, I, you know, I turned, I looked at him, I said, uh, Mr. Allen, come see my show. And I handed him the flyer because it was his kind of play. You know, mm-hmm. uh, if you see any of his movies, you know, he writes about these eccentric characters and the dialogue is, is, uh, is interesting and very down to earth. And um, I thought he would enjoy it because it was a comedy drama. So he takes the flyer and, uh, and, and starts to study it. It doesn't look at me. And he's looking and looking and looking. And finally he grabs my hand and he starts shaking my hand up and down. I thought my, was, I thought my arm was going to fall off. Just then the light turns green and he notices it, and uh, he turns and walks away and never looked at me, <laughs> which I thought was funny. And I, my arm did manage to stay hinged. It didn't fall off. And uh, that was my encounter with Woody Allen. It was, very, it was very funny. I don't know if he ever came to see the play, but he walked away and holding on to my flyer, you know. But I did that. I, I, I picked up Paul Newman one day at the Beverly Wilshire, and uh, he was a nice man. He was locked out of a car, and he had a big box he was carrying in him. There was a cake in it, and he had to go somewhere and drop a cake off and come back to another place he was renting. He and his wife were there doing a film at Joanne Woodward, and they had to get a set of keys and come back to the cab stand, you know, behind the cab stand where the car was parked. So I spent a couple hours with him, and um, he, he, was, uh, he was a pretty cool guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, those were examples of people. Steve McQueen, I was coming out of the Beverly Hills Hotel one day, and uh, he pulls up in an old jalopy in 1940s. Uh, Ford or Chevy, I forget exactly what it was. And he was uh, had long hair and a beard. He was making a, a movie called, I think, An Enemy of the People. It was a uh, uh, based on a, an Ibsen play about a uh, a doctor that finds out the town is being polluted by industrial pollution. He tries to do something about it. The water is is toxic, whatever. And uh, it was an offbeat film. And he had a company, and they produced, you know, some small movies. So, uh, I, again, I wasn't bashful. I uh, I handed, I, I said, uh, Mr. McQueen, I I, gotta, I just wrote, wrote a play. I'd like maybe somebody from the company to come and see it. And he said, what's it about? You know, I said, the cab driver, he said, it's been done. And he turned and walked away from me. It was 
about the time Taxi Driver came out. Mm-hmm. And he starts to walk away, and I said very earnestly, as he did, I said, oh, it's not Taxi Driver, you know, because he said, it's been done, Taxi Driver. Am I, am I giving the right title? They did a movie? Taxi Driver, right? I think so. I think it's Taxi Driver. Yeah, nineteen mid seventies. Yeah, Jody Jody Foster was in it. And mm-hmm. anyway, uh, uh, I said it very honestly and very uh, truthfully. You know, I know oh, this isn't Taxi Driver. And then something unexpected happened. He stopped. He turned around and looked at me because he was not someone you could really approach on the street. You know, some there were actors you could, but he he was. Uh, Someone that was a loner and uh, somewhat reclusive, and I don't think he took to people uh, approaching him uh, on the street. So he turned and he 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 looked at me, and he saw how earnest I was, and he and he walked back, and he said, "Well," he said, "Listen, ICM building was a big building that where international hey, creative Jim? management." A big- Jim, um, for the last yeah. twenty seconds, I didn't hear what you said. Uh, he he turned back and he came to you, is where it like it cut off. Oh, okay. He turned back and he came to me and he said, uh, "Well, he said we have an office over in the ICM building, which was where International Creative Management was, a big theatrical agency. We we're on the first floor." And he says, "We get out and we see stuff. So why don't you next time you're over there? Why don't you drop off a few flyers?" I said, oh, fine. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. McQueen. And then I started to walk away. I heard, good luck with it, okay? <laughs> and that was my encounter with Steve McQueen. You know, it, it, I, was, I didn't spend as much time with him as I did with uh, Paul Newman, but he was very, uh, you know, he was very nice. I was surprised I got that reaction out of him. But those are examples of all kinds of people I met. You know, Edgar Bergen was a regular customer of mine. Uh, he's the one that inspired me to write the play because he, he said to me one day, he said, you know, driving a cab, it's, this is like a grand hotel on wheels. You know, uh, he was, uh, mentioning that the famous, you know, movie of 1933, 1934, the MGM did grand hotel. Mm-hmm. And his point was all the people that get in and out of your cab, it's like a hotel. So, um, he mentioned it several times and, and that's how I began to write the play. I began writing scenes of people that get in and out of the cab, the interesting characters, and the catalytic agent was the driver. And then I incorporated my own autobiographical thing where I was a uh, an actor. And that's what it turned out to be. So it ran at a theater in, in Hollywood for about six weeks. Uh, we did about 25, 26 performances. And uh, I did not act in it. The director was not in favor of my wearing two hats, being the actor and the writer. And then I think in the way he was right. But then when I moved to New York, I did the play off off Broadway at the American Musical Dramatic Academy, their Studio One Theater on the Upper West Side. And I played the lead. So I was glad I got that out of my system that I was able to really uh, play the lead role in the play that I wrote, you know. Yep. Now- so that's basically a uh, capsule version of my time in L.A., you know. Uh, well, I was very we- fortunate. Just before we move out of LA, when you, I just want to talk a little bit more about Quincy. Yes, because you weren't, you didn't just write three scripts. You're also in six different episodes. And yes. What was it like working with Jack Klugman and Robert Ito? Oh, they they Jack was a terrific guy. So was Bob Ito. Uh, the whole cast. I I I you know I spent a lot of time on that show. So all the Gary Wahlberg, Joe Roman. Uh, uh, John Reagan, who played uh, Dr. Aston, he was a very important part of the show. Uh, Val Basolio, who played Danny, they were all great people. Jack was a consummate professional. He had a lot of, lot of artistic integrity. He had a temper. He had no patience for people that didn't know what they were doing. Uh, you know, when I first came to him, I was green. But I there was something about me, I think, that he liked my energy, my enthusiasm, and the fact that if I stumbled and fell down, I got right, got, I got right back up again, and I think there was something to be said for that. So you know, uh, that that's how I formed an association with him in the show. I learned about acting and writing from him, you know. But he was a no-nonsense person. You know, there's a funny story. 
when I was getting ready to, to fly out to L.A., I was living in New York at the time to to act in a hopefully to act. And I was I had to audition for it, the lead role in a show that Quincy episode that I wrote. And uh, Tony Randall lived on uh, Central Park West around the corner from me. And uh, one day I'm walking down Columbus Avenue with him and I'm telling him that I'm going to fly out to 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 work with Jack. And at 72nd Street, uh, he, he stops me, said, well, I'm going to go in here. He was going into a store. I'm going to leave you now. And I said, well, uh, nice to to talk to you. And he he said, wait a minute, I want to tell you something. And he put his hand on my shoulder. And for that moment, he was like my father. He was a nice man. And he said, I want you to remember something. If Jack ever yells at you, I don't want you to take it personal. It's because he wants you to be better than you are. And uh, I never forgot that. I think Jack only got annoyed, angry at me once. And it really wasn't at me. It was at NBC, a representative from NBC who wanted to try to tell him what kind of stories they should be doing, which he didn't like because he had constant battles with the studio and the network. Uh, Till, till you know the latter part of the show's years, I never forgot that. And you know, when I came out with the book many years later, I told him that story. I never, never mentioned it to him. And when I did, there was dead silence on the phone. And then he said, "It's true." <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I didn't know how he was going to react. Uh, so, Quincy was a great experience. Yeah, and I kept the in touch with Jack. Year, I think the last conversation I had with him was uh, he said, "Write a good screenplay." You know, that's that's his uh, advice and wishes to me. You know, and he was uh, happy that I was kept on writing. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, when I did the book, he didn't remember too much, but uh, I said, "Why don't I take uh, go back and do my research and." like I did on Quincy and find interviews you did and use them in the book where they're relevant because we're talking about the show, you know, that was, you know, back from 1976 to 1983. And he said, okay, send them, send them to me. So after I did, I called him up a few weeks later and I said, uh, uh, how did, did you get my stuff? And he goes, yeah, I got it. And I said, Oh, something's not going to be right here. And there was dead silence, and I said, "Well, uh, how did you like what I'm going to use, what I sent you?" Because I wrote out all the commentary that I was going to use in the book, based on the research I did of these interviews he did, you know, 25, 30, 35 years before. So there was dead silence, and all of a sudden he goes, "Yeah, use him." You know, his voice at that time was was gravelly because he had that operation you know he lost his voice box so uh his voice was uh, kind of gravelly and that was his response you know so uh he was very happy with the book he liked it and he said i think you're going to do well with it uh, and all the other people uh, you know I got, I got to talk to uh bob ito you mentioned him he was a very nice man he was um a very calming influence uh, on the set because he was uh he was steady he was uh, he was uh you know same as John Reagan John Reagan was like Jack's rock of Gibraltar because he was you know a very good su- su- uh, supporting player in that series Gary Wahlberg was someone that Jack knew and worked with in New York and he worked to get with him on the odd couple so Joe Roman who played the other cop was Jack's next door neighbor in South Philly uh, so all the cast, Val Basolio, uh, never had a contract with the Quincy, I don't think, a written contract. He had a handshake deal, and he stayed, played Danny for seven years. And he was free to go off and do a movie if he had to. You know, he did play John Travolta's father in Saturday Night Fever. He played the Indian chief in that um, the film with Gene Wilder and Harrison Ford. I'm trying to think of the name of it. Uh, the oh. Frisco Kid. Yeah, yeah Frisco or, Kid. That's the one. Yeah, so he he was free to go off and do uh, a feature if he got 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 the job, and not Quincy didn't interfere with it. 
because Jack, you know, uh, respected his talent and his ability and, uh, you know, loved theater people. He loved, uh, loved it when theater people, you know, uh, stage background people came on the, uh, on the show to do a show, uh, a guest spot like Kim Stanley or, um, Jose Ferrer or people like that, you know, he, he was a, again, a consummate professional. Mm-hmm. Like all the people on the on, and he, you know his name was above the title, really, so to speak. So he, his name, his reputation was at stake. So he, you know, like all the series leads, uh, they they invested themselves, and uh, because they were responsible for what went on the air. So if they thought something was not as good as it could be, or dishonest, or uh, untruthful, they would they would fight tooth and nail to, to correct that. That was true with all the shows. I think uh, I think all the shows and a lot were like that uh, at the time. Uh, I think uh, I think James uh, James Garner uh, he shot next door to us. I think you know he did. Uh, he he was uh, very caring about the Rockford Files. He had a very a good producer too. Uh, I think Kelly Savalas was about Kojak. They shot across the way. Uh, Bill Bixby, God rest his soul, he was the same way, I think, with The Incredible Hulk. Even though it was a cartoon character, he was, you know, he wanted it to be right. Yeah. So any time you had an actor that uh, had a name that was notable, uh, they were very, very uh, conscientious uh, about their series. Carl Molden, he was the same way. Uh, with Streets of San Francisco. When I did that book, you know, I I talked at length with Michael Douglas and and uh, Michael Priest, who was the director on the show, and John Wilder, who was the producer, and they all said the same thing, you know. So uh, that was a common thread among the series leads, something that I observed. Now, also, you were involved and, in some movies, um, and again, and, and sometimes very small parts or bigger parts. The one one of the movies I have to bring up because it's one of my favorites, The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. <laughs> yeah, I played John Yaya in that movie, The Gatekeeper. Yeah, Peter Weller was a friend of mine at the time. Mm-hmm. He got me an audition for for John Yaya. I think it was interesting because there were a couple scenes where I had to wear the mask because anytime you saw my character through his vision. I looked as I was, electroid. So I, I, I had to wear the mask. It took them a couple hours to, maybe, well, maybe not a couple. Hours. It took them a good thirty-five minutes to put it on, and uh, you know we shot that in the summertime, so it was very hot. So I didn't look forward look forward to wearing the mask. And then there were another scene or two where I, it was a small part, you know. There was there was another scene or two where I didn't have to wear the mask, so that was good. But any time. It was uh, his point of view of me. Uh, I had to have the, I had to had to be in uh, true character, which was Electroid. You know, mm-hmm. it was a good cast. Ellen Barkin, uh, John Lithgow. He stole the stole the movie. Oh, definitely. Uh, Chris Chris Lloyd, uh, Jeff Goldblum. It was uh, Bob Ito. He was in it. He played Professor Professor. Akito or something like that. Clancy Brown. It was um, an $18 million movie, which in 1983 was, you know, a big budget. You know, uh, today it would probably be four or five times that. And it was uh, it was a long shoot. I think they shot off and on for a few, well, a few months. I think they had a 62-day shooting schedule. And the line producer was uh, it's pretty good, Neil Canton. He was the... He had just come off of Back to the Future. So it was a good group of people. And, you know, I think the, the show made some money. I think they wound up breaking even with the domestic and foreign sales and the DVDs uh, revenues. It didn't, it, they weren't happy and, uh, with, enough with the, uh, the profitability. And they uh, didn't do the sequel. They were it was supposed to come out with a sequel. If at the end of the movie they show in the title, look for Buckaroo Banzai and so on and so forth in the sequel, and uh, it never happened. 
I know there's yeah. a, there's a few of us that really liked the film, and we were just you, you always hoped like oh if only there would have been a sequel and oh well yeah and yeah there were a couple actors too that were cut out of it in the beginning like Jamie Lee Curtis was Peter's mother in the opening sequence and uh, I think they decided not to use it after they shot it but she was she was mama so yeah what are some other memories you have from um, being on there with the um, the set or the act the actors any anything else. No, not really, because I didn't have to do that much, you know. Just what I told you. Well, you said you were yeah. good friends with Peter Weller, and I always yeah, enjoyed Yeah, Peter him. was a good friend of mine, yeah. So what So what was he like? I mean, because, you know, I, Peter I loved, was I a great guy. Movies. Peter was a very intelligent fellow, you know. He grew up in Texas, uh, you know, and he kind of made his bones doing plays. He was in some Broadway plays, and, um you know, he uh, clicked in movies for a while, and eventually, I think, got into directing. I haven't talked to him in years, but I think now he has a PhD. Uh, I think it's it might be in history. I'm not quite sure, but it's academic. Um, very intelligent man. Very popular with the ladies. We used to have a, a cafe where we all hung out together, a bunch of us. Uh, on the Upper West Side. It was called the Cafe Central. So I became friendly with him and uh, Peter Riegert. I was friendly with Peter. Uh, John Hurd, God rest his soul, was friendly with John. Uh, some of the other people that were in our group, you know, that, that fraternized the cafe, Dana Delaney, Tweet Williams, who was her boyfriend at the time, uh, John Goodman, he hung out at the bar. Bruce Willis was the bartender. Uh, it was a great group of people. We had fun. This was in the early, late 70s, early 1980s. Uh, and then, you know, Christine Lottie. And then, you know, gradually people all go their separate ways. Mm -hmm. People, A lot of people relocated. But it was a fun time. You know, you could go to a spot, know where your friends were, and sit in kibitz and uh uh, a couple of times we stayed up all night after the owner, because uh, he was part of the group. He was a young guy who closed the doors, and nobody told the same story twice, you know. So it was a fun time. I, I, I'm glad that I, I did the New York experience and uh, had the New York had the New York experience, I should say, and um, and uh, it was it was it was a direct uh, contrast to uh, L.A. You know, eventually I relocated to Philly and I started writing uh, books. You've, you've written quite a few books. I mean, for people, mm -hmm. for listeners, if you're interested in the classic TV shows, we're talking um, Naked City, Route 66, Wagon Train, Paid in Place, Quincy M.E., The Invaders, The Streets of San Francisco. I mean, that's a lot of different in de you know, detailed information on TV shows that ever that Maybe not everybody's seen, but everybody's heard of or has seen mm -hmm. when they were growing up. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm just, I mean, man, that's it's, it's a big list. What was it? I know we talked, you already talked about the Quincy one, but the Invaders, what was it like when mm -hmm. you, did you watch that when you were um, before? In, I did. In hey, well, I did. All, all the books that I, that I did, that I wrote and published, all of them were because they were my favorite shows because they were enjoyed by millions of people and because they were diverse and highly successful. You know, all those shows. You know, uh, Wagon Train was just a wonderful Western with uh, Robert, with Ward Bunn and Robert Horton. They had a, a great chemistry on camera. They were like Gable and Tracy. Naked City was just a very appealing show to me because it was about the uh, ordinary denizens of New York that somehow got into trouble, not not necessarily through their own choosing. The same production company did Route 66. I, I loved uh, that show. That was probably my favorite of all time because you had these two guys riding in a Corvette convertible from one town to the next. You never knew what was going to be around the bend. And the, you know, the locations were great. Uh, the acting, the writing was superb. Sarah Sterling, Sillifin, and a number of the other writers on the show were just terrific, terrific, terrific uh, writers. Wonderful writers. There, there's never been a show like that since. Um, 
and George and Marty were just great together. There was a great contrast between uh, George Maharis and uh, Marty Milner. They were, you know, George was uh, intense and temperamental and charming and the bad boy, and Marty was uh, accommodating and compromising and the blonde-haired Ivy League guy. And when George had to leave the show because he contracted hepatitis, uh, that was that was a big blow. They couldn't replace him. They tried, but it didn't work. And uh, the show lasted another year and change and then went off the air. But that was a terrific, terrific uh, series. Um, I did I did Adventures in Paradise because I, I just loved that show. It was uh, escapist entertainment, you know. Uh, Gardner McKay was a handsome guy, and he was a... Uh, an expert boat uh, a sailor, so he was at home on the boat, and they did it on the back lot of 20th Century Fox. They had a Tahitian village there, and uh, a, uh, a big lagoon, which was called the Waterways. Um, it's all gone now. That's all Century City. You know, the back lot is gone. Uh, and great music by Lionel Newman. It's a great theme song. That was pure, pure uh, escapist entertainment because you could go to a a locale where you 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 never dreamed of going, you know, every week, and people enjoyed it, you know, the South Seas. I did the Invaders because uh, Roy Finnis was a, a friend of mine, still is, and uh, I just thought it was a very unique show because it was. Uh, done by Quinn Martin, it was, so you know it was a class act, and it was not so much science fiction as it was about paranoia, a minimum of special effects, and very good writing, good writers, and very good acting, some character development. And it lasted two years. Uh, Streets of San Francisco, the same thing. I tried like hell to get on that show when I was an actor, but I could never do it because I did do some Quinn Martin shows, but I didn't do that one because, you know, they, they, uh, they filmed in San Francisco uh, and a lot of the smaller roles were cast on location. They didn't, mm -hmm. uh, except for the guest roles, they didn't bring anybody up from LA as a rule. But uh, that was a wonderful show, uh, picturesque background, great relationship between Michael and Carl Malden. They were like father and son. Quincy, we've talked about. And am I missing anything? I guess I got all the... Peyton Place was also... Uh, I was never a soap opera fan, but that was a very different kind of show. It was, you know, it was done as a movie and then as a, sequ a, re a sequel uh, based on the, the best-selling novel about uh, the scandalous lives and the people in a small New England town, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. It was... Uh, uh, a very heralded uh, property. So when they did the TV series, it, it drew oh a, a huge, huge audience, and it was unique because it never went into reruns. And they showed it twice a week, once one year, three times a week. And the way it was filmed was interesting. They still had uh, at the tail end of the uh, of the 20th century lock, they had a, uh, a like a small town. And they, they redressed it like a New England square. And they had a little wharf area there. And that's where they shot uh, the series. And uh, uh, they had a wonderful ensemble cast. You know, it ran five years and 500 and some episodes. So when I did the book, I did, instead of an episode guide, I did a season-by-season -season summation. It read like a little novel, like a mini novel. And uh, giving the you know the plot for each year, but a wonderful, uh, wonderful TV series, wonderful writers, and uh, the acting was very, very good, and it was enormously popular. Great theme song. And so those are the books that I done that I've done, and I've written two novellas, and I did my autobiography about uh, Hollywood and traveling and. Uh, there's, there's two other, there's there's three other books I wanted to bring up. I'm not sure if you still have in print or not for two of them, and that is your sports books, Philly Hoops, the SPHAS, and Warriors, and the yeah, Philadelphia Spaz, yeah. Athletics. Are they still in print? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I, I love sports. For, 
Yeah, SPAS stands for South Philadelphia Hebrew Association. The SPAS were the first professional basketball team in Philadelphia in you know in the 20s and 30s on into the 40s, and uh, they were predominantly Jewish, and they played in a league called the American Basketball League. It preceded the NBA, and then the the uh, one of the players uh, became the uh, the coach and the owner of the team of the War- Philadelphia Warriors, and that uh, became the uh, uh, was the next incarnation of professional basketball in Philly, and that played in a league called the Basketball Association of America for three years, from 1946 to 49, and then that morphed that morphed into the NBA. So I wrote about those first two teams because Eddie Gottlieb was the uh, catalytic agent. He was the uh, player, then the coach and the owner. And the Philadelphia Warriors was uh, a team here when I was a kid. And then they moved to eventually in the early 60s to San Francisco. And now they're the Golden State Warriors. And then the year after that, the Syracuse Nationals came to Philadelphia and became the Philadelphia 76ers. But I grew up with, you know, the... What a, you know, a great warrior team. They played at Convention Hall here. That's gone now. Will Chamberlain was the center uh, uh, the last three, four years they were here. Uh, Paul Arizon was a, a Hall of Fame uh, player, a forward. Paul, uh, Tom Gola was a Hall of Fame guard. You know, they were, uh, and it was a great uh, w- war between them and the uh, Boston Celtics every year. Can I, can I ask you a question? Uh, did you see yeah. Will Chamberlain play? Sure, yeah, sure I did. Oh, oh, yeah. To me, he's the greatest basketball player ever. What What was it like seeing Will Chamberlain? Well, he, he was a, he was a, he was a phenomenal athlete. You know, uh, he was a, a big, big, strong man. You know, he 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 never kept track of block shots. And uh, the, Harvey Pollock, who was the statist, statistician then. And he carried on to the 76ers. The, the, uh, he told me the NBA didn't record blocks. He probably would have had 12 or 13 blocks a game. Uh, and they still had pretty good centers in his time. You know, they had Bill Russell. They had Nate Thurman with the uh, San Francisco Warriors. They had uh, Ray Scott, I think, with the Detroit Pistons. They had uh, uh, they they had some good uh, – Clyde Lavellet was with the uh, St. Louis Hawks. Came the Atlanta Hawks. He had some good centers to contend with, you know, but he just was—he uh, was unstoppable, you know. He—he he was amazing. I—I I got to meet Wilt because my dear friend in L.A., like my big brother, was Timmy Brown, who was the uh, starting uh, running back for the Philadelphia Eagles in the 1960s, and he became an actor. So. Uh, I met him when I went to L.A., and I, we played basketball at the Beverly Hills Health Club. Uh, and, uh, you know, we had a, a lot of people that came on the court and played with us. Uh, Elliot Gould, the Peter Falk used to come on and play with us. Uh, uh, we had a good time. That's how I met Timmy, and uh, uh, he was friends with Jim Brown and with uh, with Wilt. So I met both of them, and uh, uh, I... I a number of occasions I spent with Timmy and Jim together, uh, and they kind of adopted me as a little little brother, you know, uh, at the time. Uh, but Will, Will, I met a couple of times. He was a great guy. I, 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 very friendly man, very friendly man, very nice man, but very, you know, uh, very strong. Uh, people didn't realize how strong he was, and uh, you know, he could do anything he wanted on the court. Uh, one season they they criticized him for not passing the ball. So when he read that in the paper, he said, "I'll show them." So that season he led the league in assists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he he was incredible. He was incredible, and he spent three years with the Warriors. He came in '59. He played with the Globetrotters when he got out of uh, college and then he uh, played three years with the, the Warriors and then they went to California and then he came back in the mid sixties and played with the Sixers for two or three seasons and went, went back out to LA to play with the Lakers. Mm-hmm. Great guy. And Timmy was a great guy. Timmy was a great running back with the Eagles and uh great broken field runner. 
probably one of the 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 best broken field runners in the in the NFL for the first four or five years of the '60s until Gail Sayers came with the Chicago Bears in the mid 1960s. Uh, but Timmy was a handsome guy, had a great personality. He was beloved by the fans, and uh, he finished his career with the Baltimore Colts in the Super Bowl when they where they were beaten by the Jets. So I was fortunate to have him as a like a big brother, and uh, and Jim Brown was also a very interesting man. Uh, uh, advised me on certain things when I was in his company. You know, he and Timmy had a a good friendship. They had a mutual respect. You know, they played in the Pro Bowl together three times, I think. And, you know, Timmy was an actor like Jim was, but he didn't have the success that Jim had, you know. Yeah. Jim. Jim. So that's that's pretty much the kit and caboodle, I think, for uh, my time. Uh, I'm currently trying to sell my one of my novellas, which is a short novel. I did two of them. One was a crime drama about a cop in a neighborhood, cleans up a neighborhood, works out of a mini station. It's called Bell Garden Beat. The other is Butterfly, and uh, that's about a boy in a small town that has a mental illness, and uh, that's a, I think could be a good movie. I really do. Uh, Bell Garden Beat is more of a television pilot for a series, a limited series maybe. But uh, Butterfly is a, it could be a movie for the new media on one of the streaming services. So I'm trying right now to contact different people, development people at uh, different companies and maybe some actresses that I know that have production companies and are looking for things and try to trying to get them to read Butterfly because I really believe in its uh, viability as a, as, a, as a film that you would watch in your living room, you know, on Amazon Prime or Apple TV or Netflix, you know. Yep. And I hope and you that, have great success of getting that uh, you know, getting that out. There well, thank you. I hope so too. I, I really believe in it. And, uh, I think it's a good story and I'm very happy that I did my autobiography people places in me. I did that two years ago and, uh, that's gotten some nice reviews on Amazon as butterfly has. And my latest project is, uh, it's dear to my heart is, uh, my cut. Co- he's a distant cousin of mine, Nehemiah Persoff, uh, the renowned character actor, uh, he's 102 years old now. He is the uh, oldest living uh, remaining uh, character actor from the Hollywood's golden years. And, uh, you know, in the past year, he just sat down to write his memoirs. His, he had a five-decade career. He appeared on Broadway with, God, John Garfield, Boris Karloff, uh, uh, Gene Arthur. I mean, it's amazing the actors that he did. Uh, Broadway plays with and then of course he had a movie career he was in 40 films uh, on the waterfront and he made his debut in that much imitated cab driver scene with Brando and Steiger he was in uh, a nice supporting role in uh, The Heart of They Fall which was Humphrey Bogart's last movie he he had a, has this one scene but it's so he's so remembered for his scene as little Bonaparte in Some Like It Hot he was in The Greatest Story Ever Told. He was in uh, so many movies. Uh, played Barbara Streisand's father in Yentl many years later. And then, of course, he was very prominent on television. Uh, everything from Twilight Zone and to uh, Route 66 to Naked City to Gilligan's Island to Gunsmoke, Hawaii Five O, all the way down the la- uh, all the way down the road to. Shows like Law and Order and Chicago Hope, you know, mm-hmm. and probably well, well over 200, 250 TV shows that he guest starred in. So uh, he has a wonderful book. Uh, he came from Jerusalem as a small boy and uh, uh, t- during the Depression and uh, lived in Brooklyn, in the Williamsburg section of Brooklyn, and worked in, as an electrician in the subway and had a remarkable transition to Broadway and Hollywood. So it's all about that and his uh, cultural clash because, you know, the people were different in Jerusalem than they were in Brooklyn. So he had different values, and uh, he was a pariah. But he, he found his niche in storytelling and becoming an actor and uh, a wonderful man. And uh, we've gotten good reviews. 
and uh, we're still promoting the book. It's uh, it's only been out three months, and uh, I did sell a number of copies at the Mid Atlantic Nostalgia Convention, uh, where I uh, met you, yep. and um, we'll see what happens. And the name we'll of the book happens. is the the many faces of Nehemiah. Yes, it's a terrific book. I'm I'm very happy that I published it. Yeah, very happy, and I think he is too. I I'm amazed that he did it. Because he wrote that book at age 100, uh, and you know he's, his memory and everything else is intact. And uh, it's not a lengthy book; it's probably 190 pages, something like that, maybe 175 if you take away the back matter of the book. Where but can, it's very rich, where and can he's be- very uh, economical in his writing, in in the way he re- he his remembrances and his recollections and it's just filled with a lot of the humanity and, and humor and poignancy. And, uh, you know, and there's that part of the book where he talks about, you know, the different people that he worked with and he enjoyed, you know, there's some funny stories and some interesting stories about working with uh, you know, John Wayne and uh, Boris Karloff and Humphrey Bogart and James Cagney and, and uh, Brando and Rod Steiger and, you know, Barbara Streisand, people like that. So the readers get their share of that. But it's not a book about name dropping. Far from it. It's a book about uh, uh, his experiences and what it was like to come from another culture in another country at age 10 and all of a sudden find yourself in a depression. You know, because that was a terrible time, you know. Yep. But uh, I've, I've known him for 50 years and... Uh, He's uh, just a terrific human being, and thank God we still have him at 102. And, and also, thankfully, he has that recall to, so this, yes, these things can be absolutely. put down. And absolutely. Where can people get your books at? Well, all my books are for sale on Amazon, and I have a website. If you uh, Amazon will give you pretty good information about them and, and give you the reviews, the customer reviews, and some of the uh, – industry reviews under the uh, editorial review section. But I also have a website that uh, talks about the books, which is fun to go on. It's called classictvseriesbooks.com, and that has a page for each book. And I have a 12 or 13 books listed on there. And for listeners, I'm I'll, glad have, I did them. I'll have that and link I made good on friendships, the show notes. Yeah, from the books, yeah. And for listeners, I'll have that link on the show notes. So if you, if you didn't have time to write okay, it down, if you're well, listening thank you. to it, you yeah. can click on it and go right. And also talks more about, uh, gives a little bit about your background, but like you have a page or two um, for each book or sometimes, you know, and, and it's that way people can really get the more detailed of what they're purchasing. Yes. yes uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So, so anyway, that's, um, that's the way things are. I'm going to do the Williamsburg Film Festival in November. Uh, were you planning to attend that? Um, I won't be down there this November. Um, but I do, I know you're a fixture. It seems like the last several years at the mid Atlantic nostalgic convention in Hunt Valley. Yes. Yeah. I I love that show. I think Martin Graham is a tremendous person and, uh, he's amazing. You know, uh, he's done so many books on radio and TV and uh, pop culture and he has a blog and, uh, He's a showrunner, you know, uh, he does that show with his wife, Michelle, and I think you'll admit it's probably one of the best in the country. Uh, I'm not know, arguing with you, Derek. To me, it's, it's, there's, there's two shows I always say that are, to me, the top two. I'm not going to pick between them, and that is the Mid-Atlantic Nostalgia Convention and Monster Bash, which is, but that one, Monster Bash is more genre-specific, you know, classic horror, and Martin's show is pretty much all the different genres. Um, yeah. radio, yeah. old time radio, classic TV, movies. Mm. I mean, it's, it's, it has artists that come. It's, 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 a uh, pretty much everything. Mm-hmm. It certainly is. Yeah. I've never been to monster bash. It's, uh, I've met the, uh, the producer of that show at, the at the mid Atlantic show. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's in Pittsburgh, isn't it? Yep. It's yeah, just North of Pittsburgh and Mars, Pennsylvania. And, and the person you're talking to is probably Ron Adams. Right, Adams. That's right. Yeah, hey, nice fellow. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, yeah, it's enjoyable. 
it's it's fun, you know, to meet to people like yourself that are genuine fans and uh you know, uh, love love the uh, the various entertainment genres and uh and still have that uh that kid inside of us and hopefully it never leaves, you know. I I think so and one thing I I I purchased your book People Places and Me and mm-hmm. early on in the book you have a quote and I just want to read the quote and ask you you know, why you put it in the book, you know, for listeners to get an idea a little more about you mm-hmm. and with the book, mm-hmm. the rainbow is more beautiful than the pot of gold at the end of it for the rainbow is now. And the pot is never quite what you expect it to be. Hugh um, Prather. Yeah. Hugh Prather. Yeah. He, uh, I had that book in when I, uh, I bought that book in a uh, store. Uh, I think called the Bodhi Tree in in West Hollywood on Melrose Avenue in the early 1970s, and uh, it was a very spiritual bookstore. You know, they had a lot of books on the Eastern philosophy and religion, and uh, and uh, uh, again, it was during the height of the consciousness movement out there, and he just had a lot of uh, expressions and uh, quotes. And that was one of them. It really stood with me. And the reason why it remained with me was because I think, and it's it's not easy to uh, to attain, but, you know, throughout life, when you really think about it, I think you would agree with me. You, you might not, but I think you might, that, you know, when we anticipate and we have expectation, things never quite turn out to be the way they 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 turn out and a lot of times the trap especially in the entertainment industry is to uh you know if things are going well to uh, project that into the future and think well this is what's going to happen from my doing this and doing that and i think a good lesson after you experience life and what it gives you is that to be in the moment and enjoy it and and it's the best thing that you can do for yourself and it's it's the best way to enrich your life you know mm-hmm. uh, to do what you can with what you have when you can do it and enjoy the moment and be in the moment uh, especially when you're an actor you know doing uh, a scene up on the stage or before a camera with another actor you have to be that's what you strive to be be in the moment and not uh, you know, and, and off stage as well. Don't don't concern yourself with get caught up in expectation and expect expectation and anticipation, because it it's uh, it's it's it, it, there's no predictability to it, and you don't know how things are going to turn out. And 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 trying to look ahead all the time and look forward to things. And overdoing that, you miss what's happening in the now, you know. And that's why that that statement really uh, it, uh, hit home with me. Oh, I loved it, and and I, I agree with you. It, it for me, it was like enjoy the journey, take in the journey. The mm-hmm. the, the end might not be exactly what you're expecting it to be, but it's all the the parts that take you to that end product. That is the that mm-hmm. is the joy. You know, of, yeah. of doing, of doing, the, of of going through life and experiences, and taking those opportunities when they show up. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And for listeners, if if you read Jim's book, he's he's lived that part. He's gone through life. He's he's taken in those experiences, and we give a small sampling of what you've gone through in this interview. And it's it's, it's definitely you you so far have a life well lived. You know, with if if going by that as the goal, going through and living mm-hmm. life and enjoying life. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I strive to try to do it the right way. We don't always succeed, but I think it's, uh, you know, uh, what Denzel Washington uh, uh, once said, uh, "Nice fellow." He once said, uh, "If you if you if you fall down seven times, get up eight. You know. Yep. Jim, thank you for joining me for this this conversation about your life. Well, thank you. Listen, it's uh, it's <laughs> I'm flattered that uh, you would approach me and want me to talk about my my experiences. Uh, I uh, 
I thank you much. Uh, I'm gratified, you know, and I didn't, I, I, I didn't know how it was going to turn out, but, uh, it's funny, you know, once you begin to reminisce, it all comes back to you. And, uh, I really, when I, when I think, think, think back to all that that's happened, I, 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 I really feel fortunate that, uh, that, that, uh, it did. And, uh, and, you know, uh, you tend to forget about those things and, and not realize how much water has flown under the, has run under the bridge because you're busy caught up in the, you know, the current, current times. So, uh, listen, it's, it's, uh, it's nice to go back. People, people say, well, what's past is history. Why relive it? Why go back? What's important is what's happening right now. Well, I would say to them, some of that may be true, but you know what? Uh, sometimes it's, it's fun to go back, especially if you had a good time there. Oh, I agree. It's, 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 sometimes it's nice to go back and reminisce and enjoy and remember those good times. And then, yep. And then as you live Absolutely. life, you get more good times and you have more things to reminisce. It's, it's just a matter of mm-hmm. seeking out those inter- interesting experiences. I agree. Well, thank you, Stephen. This has been enjoyable. I appreciate it. And uh, I wish you and your family uh, well. I'll probably see you again uh, at the uh, Mid-Atlantic Nostalgia Convention. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. And thank you. And I hope um, all your friends and family are doing well also. And listeners, I'm saying the same for you. I hope everybody's doing well. Hopefully you'll join us next episode when we'll be doing a movie review decided by the roll of a die, another movie, another interview. But as always, be safe. Do something fun. Go to ClassicTVSeriesBooks.com and order a book. I mean, there's a wide variety of things there, whether you're a sports fan, um, music fan, TV shows, and so on. There's a lot of things out there to get. Otherwise, everybody, be safe and enjoy life. Work, the world of forensic medicine.